Hello and welcome to the NFL Scotland podcast as our build-up to the new season begins. And we have gone giant today. I mean literally giant. Not only do we have Jamie Borthwick, a resident Giants fan from the NFL Scotland podcast, but we have all the way from the States, the man with a golden boot, the man who owns Tom Brady. We're delighted <laughs> to have Lawrence Dyes with us. Lawrence, brilliant to have you. Thank you for taking to ca- time to come on the NFL Scotland podcast and it must be a surprise that the NFL is so big over here. It, it is. You know, I was just thinking, I said, who would have thought 10 years ago there would be an NFL Scotland podcast? But I may have had something to do with that, I think, a little tiny part playing over in, in, with the Claymores. And I think that gave people an appetite to see what the hell this game was all about. And then obviously the NFL playing in London. So, yeah, it's, it's a cool – I mean, the NFL has done well. They've done very well marketing. Uh, I never in a million years thought football would take off in Scotland, but here we are. It's bizarre. So in, in terms of setting the scene, you were born in Scotland. You lived here until you were 10. You went to the States. You played soccer, as, as it would be. I know. Yeah. When did the inkling come or, you know, the, the, the American style might, might suit you? How, what made you get involved in that? So playing soccer was obviously, I've been doing it since I was two. Um, I could always kick a ball. I was a talented soccer player. But when, I, when we moved to Florida, soccer just wasn't a very big sport in America at the time. Even though I played on a travel team, I did end up playing ultimately on my travel team with a couple of guys who went pro soccer. I just w- was so enamored by Friday night high school football. And I would go to the, you know, the games as a student with my friends and hang out. And, you know, our town was only like 9,000 people, but there'd be 12,000 people in the stadium for a high school football game. And I was, I was just kind of interested in like, man, this is cool. You know, everyone's coming out to watch this game and I didn't know what I would do. Um, So finally my junior year, my PE teacher was our defensive coordinator and he knew I played soccer, so he asked me to come out during PE class. And we went to the baseball field, and he put the ball down, and he said, can you kick this ball, you know, pointing in a direction? And I said, of course. So um, it's funny. I never stopped kicking from that day. And so I went into, like, spring training, played junior year, senior year, and that was it. Um, I was addicted. Um, you know, it's different than soccer, but I just had a natural ability to kick a ball. Um, so it was pretty, it, it came pretty easy to me, to be honest. What position did you play at soccer, Lawrence? So I was a forward. Um, I was a goal scorer, a little bit of a cherry picker, a little lazy. Um, <laughs> I, I was, I, I could put the ball in the back of the net. Um, it, it was, you know, I was a big Paul McStay fan growing up for all, all the listeners. I, I was a huge, I'm a huge Celtic fan. I wanted to be Paul McStay. Uh, unfortunately we moved and, you know, I, I found American football, but um, I still love I still love soccer. Like the European Cup, you know, last month was insane. I could have watched that for you know three months straight. So I enjoy I enjoy the football. So from from college, you were at the Troy Trojans, who are now part of the Sun Belt. You became an undrafted free agent. How did the contact with Kansas City come about? So coming out, I was lucky, you know, Matt Allen, our punter, we were both pretty highly regarded by the NFL scouts. And it was funny because both of us went to Troy, came into Troy together. Uh, He was a punter holder and I was a kicker. And 
we both just kind of, you know, stuck together like glue for four years. I mean, to have the same guy holding and Matt ultimately ended up playing in the NFL as well. Matt was, if you guys follow the football closely, Matt played for the giants. Matt was the holder for that really bad Trey Junkin snap against the Niners. Um, and Matt, unfortunately never played again in the NFL after that game. Um, and he had had a really good game, but, you know, having someone else, you know, it brought a lot of scouts to Troy to come watch us play. And um, I had a really good dialogue with Frank Gans Jr., and, who was the special teams coach at Kansas City. And then Frank Gans Sr., his father, one of the best special teams coaches of all time, who has since passed away. He was at Jacksonville. So there was about three teams um, that want – it was San Diego, Jacksonville, or Kansas City – when I was coming out of the draft, which, you know, sometimes it's better not to be drafted after the sixth or seventh round. Cause I got to actually pick where I wanted to go and where I thought I could make it. And so I picked Kansas city um, just because I knew they had Todd Peterson. He was an older kicker. I, I didn't make the team that year, but um, I hung around a little bit, did some practice squad stuff and, and was able to learn. So um, yeah, having Matt, I think helped immensely. And then we had a bunch of other pros. I mean, Troy was putting out, you know, one or two draft picks a year and five or six undrafted guys. So, you know, Troy has a really good football program. Of course, DeMarcus Ware and OCU Manora played at Troy too, so. But your journey then took you, ironically, back to Scotland and the Claymores. Unbelievable. It's it's one of these things, it's one of these things that, you know, newspapers and broadcasters love because it's it's a terrific story and suddenly you found yourself back over here. It was, it just... You know, Thomas McGahee, who's the Giants special teams coach, and I were together in Kansas City. And when I went to Europe that next year, Thomas was the special teams coach for the Claymores. And it was just weird. Uh, you know, obviously, he was the one who picked me out of the camp in, in, in Tampa where they have NFL Europe training camp. But obviously, knowing that I was going to be coming back home, essentially, because, uh, you know, I would, I, what was great about playing for the Claymores is Every day after practice, I would hop on the train and go see my granny in Greenwich. So my aunt would pick me up or somebody. And, you know, we stayed at the hotel in Glasgow where the train station is. So, like, I mean, it was so convenient to walk downstairs and hop on the train. I was in Greenock in, like, 30, 45 minutes. My aunt would pick me up, and I'd go hang out at my granny's all day and eat soup and hang out. And it was – so it was a little bit of a family homecoming, too. But to think that I would ever be back in Scotland playing – NFL football or NFL Europe, uh, never in a million years did I, did I think that was going to happen. But once they did start that league, that's obviously where I wanted to play. It just, it just made so much sense. So I was, I'm very fortunate that I got to play in that league because I think it did a lot of good for me. And next stop was you know, a spell in the CFL in Ottawa. So, you, you know, you were getting the experience. So can I just ask you a technical question? You, you talked about, Matt Weatherford and your holder. What's it like for a kicker to have to change holder? What what difference does that make to you? Well, everyone's unique in how they receive the ball and put it down. So, you know, for the most part, a lot of guys look similar, but there's some differences in how guys receive the ball from the snapper as they catch it. Um, a lot of that is just a lot of reps because ultimately these the NFL snappers are so good. The holders are literally catching it and the laces are already out and they just put the ball down. You know, they don't rotate the ball one way or the other. Um, 
I had a bunch of holders, you know, in Kansas city, I had a lot of holders. Um, I had Jeff Eagles for two years, maybe Steve Weatherford for three. I mean, it was just, I never really had that group, you know, every year that was the same, 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 which, you know, I, I credit a lot of what Justin Tucker does and some of these guys that are really good in the NFL with having the same holder, having the same snappers for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. So, um, they're, everyone's just a little bit different. It, it's not overwhelming. It just takes a couple, you know, weeks of practice to figure them out. Now, Lawrence, they say you never forget your first time. Do you remember your first professional kick? Yeah, I missed it. Yeah. I remember <laughs> it very well. Um, I was uh, now NFL kick. Um, my first NFL kick was in Denver, and it's a pretty cool story. So it was opening week 2004. And very bizarre scene. So at halftime, um, I had went out and kicked a 63-yard field goal. First NFL attempt. And I was like, Jesus, what the hell are we doing? This is my first kick. Why are we kicking from 63 yards? <laughs> and so we're in Denver, Mahai, and I just barely missed it left. I would have stripped naked and retired if I made that kick. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely would have left everything on the field, done forever. <laughs> I would have been a legend. So I, so we come off the field and something, I don't, there was a penalty. There was a defensive penalty to where the, the refs thought they should come back in the locker room and say, Hey, we got to go back out and retry this kick from five yards closer. But here's the kicker. It was opening week. So, you know, NFL, they always have like a band or some huge rock band. So there was a huge rock band out there. We have to wait and get these damn, whoever the hell's playing, you could look it up off the field. And then we get to try it from 58 and I missed that son of a gun too. So um, needless to say, it was not the greatest start to my career, even though they were bombs, um, man, I wish I would have made either one of those, but ultimately I, my first make was a 50 yarder. And then, so my, so I had kicked 63, 58 and 50 for my first, you know, literally it was, it was statistically two attempts Um so I, I was one for two, missed a 58, missed a, and made a 50. Um, but, you know, kicking in Denver is a lot of fun, by the way. The ball just flies. A lot of fun. You mentioned, you know, I mean, for kickers, and, and, and Jamie and Lewis, because we, we've watched the sport, they're either the hero and everybody mobs them, or, you know, sometimes you will miss. Mentally, because, I mean, you've got a really high kicking percentage, and I'm going to ask you about numbers in a minute. Mentally, how do you cope with a miss? Does it automatically disappear? Does it play on your mind? How do you cope with these things as a professional? Yeah, I mean, it should. I think the good guys, you know, the NFL is really what do you do after a miss? It's not, it's not how many you make in a row because you're expected to make a lot of kicks in a row. So I always say, you know, you see who guys really are. What do they do after they miss a kick? And that shows your coaches, it shows your teammates, it shows your organization that it doesn't bother you. Because to be honest with you, you don't miss a lot of kicks. Like when you're practicing and you're warming up and preseason, I mean, you just don't in practice. I mean, my last training camp in New York, I think I was like 74 for 75 in team drills, like in live scrimmages and live because they chart all that stuff. Everything's filmed. So if you think about missing in games, and there's a lot of reasons why people missing games, right? There's weather, there's the moment, there's the pressure. I mean, all that factors in sometimes when you miss because when you're that good at practice. But 
missing kicks is just something you're not used to, but I understood they were going to happen. I don't care. I mean, a lot of times I hit really good balls and I miss because maybe I didn't play it right or I misread the wind or something like that. So I just really didn't care. I, I just always was like, all right, well, hopefully we get another shot. But there are guys, you know, the guys that don't last long, they just hang on to misses and can't can't forget them. So I did, a, you know, it was something I was blessed with. I don't know where I learned that from uh, in high school or college or whatever. I just didn't carry misses with me. You think you have to have that mentality where you can't get up or down to, to make it at that level? Because, I mean, you guys, you, you're on the sideline probably longer than anyone else. You you. you you can make kicks, which, I mean, you kicked us into the Super Bowl twice with um, unbelievably high pressure. Yeah, it doesn't, it always seems like when, when these huge moments happen, everyone else is more excited than the actual kicker. Is that is that true? You mean to go kick at yeah. that point? No, yeah, no, I mean. When you, when, you, when you make it, when you make it. Oh, when you make it, you make it. yeah. Walk, there's a kick. Yeah, there's a little bit of, I mean, obviously relief. Would I don't know if that's the right word, but you understand the moment, but you understand as a kicker in the NFL that there's 32 people in the world to get to do that. So, you, I mean, naturally you have an arrogance about you. Every kicker should, um, because if you think about it, there's 32 people in the world that do what you do. That's a very small group of people. And so all the guys are good. All the guys, I mean, from one through 32, they're all good. Even there's 10 guys on the street right now that are NFL worthy that just aren't going to make a team. So you understand that. But when you go out there, I mean, I just always thought there's only two things that can happen. You either make it or you don't. And I, I think the guys that get in trouble, the guys that overthink stuff. And, you know, I was not a lean guy. Like when you, you know, some kickers ask you to lean the ball certain ways in the wind. And I know David Akers was really into that. He's a buddy of mine, but I just was like, if I can simplify my holder's job, It'll simplify my job. Catch the ball and put the damn ball down. Don't lean it left because if it leans left, that's that's death for a right-footed kicker. Straight up and down or towards you. And, you know, you can do some crazy things with leans on the ball, like a driver or something. But I just try to make it simple and, you know, point, shoot, kick. Hopefully you make it. Um, and I think it served me well. But the excitement of making a kick in those situations is – it's on, it, it, there's a little bit of relief. Don't get me wrong because, you know, the first question you get every week when you go to the Super Bowl is the Scott Norwood question. Mm -hmm. It happens both Super Bowls within five questions. You're answering questions about Scott Norwood and you hate it for him. And people forget Scott Norwood was a very, very good NFL kicker. Mm -hmm. He missed a 47 yard field goal. It was not a chip shot. So I hate that that's what he's remembered for, but I always would answer it by saying, I know what I signed up for and you can always be the goat, you know, the other, the bad goat, not the Tom Brady goat. So um, I just, you know, keeping things simple, I think in all sports and life in general is just the way to do it. Don't overthink it. So that's how I approach it. But man, making those kicks is a shit ton of fun. Am I allowed to cuss on here? I just did. <laughs> yeah. um, um, it's just, you know, the best reward is turning around and seeing all your teammates because they're the ones that put in all the work. I mean, physically, listen, I get, I get in the locker room and, you know, intro roll or straight hand or someone will come up to you and they go, I have no idea how you do that shit. Like it's amazing. Right. But I also have no idea how you go out there and fight with a tackle for 70 plays and get beat up and punched and kicked and 
you know, run into people. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a respectful balance of between the mental part and the physical part. But trust me, I always said everyone wants to be a kicker on the team, except, except on Sundays. And that's true. Nobody wants our job. They really I just wanted to, to, to know what the relationship between, because the, the, the special teams guys have spent so long together. You're all about precision and about, you know, you knowing yeah. exactly how each of you works together. Um, but what's your relationship like with the guys on defense and offense? Great. It, it's what you want to make it. You, listen, there, I've, I've, uh, I haven't been on many teams that where guys were kind of off to the side. Obviously, I've been in training camp with like Morton Anderson's and some older guys, and they just did their own thing like stood off to the side. Whereas, you know, I, I think of myself more as an athlete. I did play safety in high school too. So I would always help with the DBs. I would go stand for the offense if they needed a receiver to stand. I did all the running, all the lifting. I did everything every player on our team did because I wanted to be part of the team. And so I think what that does is, is when you, when you do miss, they have a lot more respect for you because I'm one of the guys. If I was the guy who didn't come work out and run with them and put in sweat and do all the things they do and I miss, they'd probably all look at me at the side of their face mask being like, yeah, that guy doesn't do shit. So that's why I put in all the extra work to be part of the team outside of tackling people, which I did on kickoffs. But, man, I was with the DBs all the time, Peter Genta, Corey Webster, Antro. I did all the drills. Like I would do – I would be throwing the balls and stuff for their drills and – warming them up. And once you integrate yourself into the team, I mean, all those guys have a ton of respect for you. Take you to the Giants then. And and you, you moved there after kicking for Kansas for three seasons. You've gone from a Midwest, more rural setting, you know, to the town where they tell you, if you can make it there, you'll make it anywhere with one of the most vicious medias going, certainly at, at that time. Uh, what was the change like for you in a in the personal sense of stepping from Kansas into New York? That's a great question. It was shocking, to be honest. I mean, coming from a small town in Milton, Florida, nine thousand people, where high school football is big, but it's then going to Troy, which was a one double A school at the time, and then Kansas City was actually a really good stepping stone for me because, you know, Ottawa was a big city in Canada. And the CFL is bigger than most people probably know outside of Canada. I mean, it's, it's a big deal. You play in front of 40, 50,000 people up in Canada, so it's a great league. But Kansas City, six or seven, eight, nine people, maybe 15 post game on a Sunday in the locker room. When I got traded to New York, it was during OTAs offseason. So I went up there, was just doing my work, you know, kind of did my workout. We did our whatever. And I came back from my first day with the team. And media was had access to the locker room. And I swear to God, there was 40 cameras in front of my locker. And I was like, what's going on? And I, you know, I had gotten traded. I just didn't think it was that big of a deal. But of course, everything in New York is a big deal. And so that's when I knew I was somewhere different. When I got done with that very first day and, you know, our PR guys, nobody gave me a heads up. Hey, there's going to be 40 cameras in front of your locker. And I'm not kidding. It was deep. I felt like I was given like a presidential address. Like I was standing there as far out as I could see. And it's, you know, and I've gotten to be friends. I do a podcast with Paul Schwartz from the post. He's uh, we do a podcast twice a week during the season, but it, it was intimidating 
to answer your question, it was very, very, very intimidating at first. In terms of dealing with the media, players have got all sorts of different strategies. Jamie encounters this on a daily basis with STV. How did you view the media? Were you suspicious? Did you want to get them on side? You know, were you concerned about being misquoted? What, what was your take on the media? Yeah, I, did. I was not a huge fan just because I'm a very team. I'm a team guy. Like, I don't, you know, listen, those guys are all very good at their job. And a lot of them that were in that locker room back in 2008, they're all on the national scale now. You know, the Mike Garofalos and and I like Mike a lot. I, I, I trusted them enough, but I never, I was never the guy you could call and get an insider I was never going to share that with anyone because to me that's sacred ground. And listen, they had 10 other guys that would do that. That's just how people are. People like to talk. So, but it was never going to be me. Um, So I just, I respected them. I really did because um, I I didn't have any issues with anyone. I mean, listen, if you have a bad game, someone's going to write a bad story about you. That's just part of the deal. Just try not to have any bad games. Um, but for the most part, I think they're all pretty fair. And then they're, they're, they're a big reason, you know, why you have celebrity. People forget that too. So, but I was not, I was not super friendly with any of them, to be honest with you. Um, Mike Garofalo and some of the other guys, Mike was younger at the time, but some of the big national writers, you know, I just kind of kept to myself, said what I needed to say, keep it short. Um, I tried to show a little personality. I was not Bill Belichick like, but, um, just move on. If they were talking to me, it was usually not always great things. I mean, sure, sometimes they wanted to talk to me if I had a good streak going, but most of the time they only want to talk to you when you mess. So that's a fair point. That's a fair point. 2007, the NFC Championship game, famously at Lambeau. You talked about how you deal with missed kicks, it's a tough place to kick, I guess. But you had that chance of redemption to win the game. Does does that replay in your mind at all? Is it something you go back and visit? You, you, you know, how, how do you treat um, that? You mean, do I think about that game in particular or the misses or? No, no, just, just I mean, that that's one of the defining moments was the, the, the kick and the celebration certainly that came after it. And uh, I think it was your holder that, that is seen in the pictures going absolutely crazy. Yeah, Jeff um, was just too old to run. Yeah. He's old and slow, uh, so he couldn't. I had just had enough of that damn weather. I, I knew, I said to myself before I, that kick, I said, after I make this kick, I am hauling ass directly to the locker room. And you saw a stray hand try to catch me, couldn't catch me. I was gone. I, <laughs> you guys have no, I mean, I, it's hard to explain how miserable that was. I mean, minus, minus 28 degrees is something that nobody should be, be outside in. Uh, it was just apps. And then to have to kick in it. So three for five, it's still my best game of my life. I don't care. I've had a bunch of five for five field goal games and game winners, but you know, three for five minus 28, no one will ever tell me that wasn't a good game. Now, would I like to have the the last kick back at the end of regulation? Probably, but that whole operation sucked. I mean, Jeff left his feet to get the snap. I'm leaning to buy time. The one before it, I, I did not hit that bad. The 43-yarder with about eight minutes left, I hit it really well, and that and that's just me being me. I hit it well. I just didn't play play it right. So I didn't, you know, I, like I said earlier, I don't. There's a lot of things you can learn when you miss too. So that's what gave me the confidence to know that I could make that 47 yarder because I said, 
if I just start this a little bit further right, which I did, and the snap and hold's good, which it was, and then we would make the kick, and we made the kick. So um, definitely brutal conditions, though. God almighty, that was tough. The, the one question that I'd like to ask you on that, you, you've made the kick, and it looked good. I've watched that a couple of times again today. It looked good. What's it like defeating not only the Packers, but defeating a home crowd? Because, I mean, obviously they're trying to noise you up. And then all of a sudden, bang, you've ended their season. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's, listen, it's, uh, you know, we're all, as athletes, you just want to prove people wrong. You know, beat teams you're not supposed to beat. Uh, go into their stadium and 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 win games you're not supposed to win. And and we did that a lot that year. I think we won 11 in a row on the road. So the road was not intimidating for us for some reason. It was just a bunch of guys that bought in under what Tom was talking about, and we, we did it. And we were always pretty good on, on the road under Tom. He kind of built this us-against-the-world mentality. And so, you know, winning on the road, I think 10 years ago was much harder in the NFL. I feel like now it's almost balanced out. It used to be such a discrepancy between – your record on the road and at home. And now it's, you know, I, I don't know what the numbers are, but it seems like it's 50, 50, not, not many teams are, you know, keeping home court home serve very often like they used to. There's, you know, Arrowhead has a home field advantage, Seattle, some of these really loud places, but hell when Dallas opened up for the first four years, I think they had a losing record at home. So, and you would think with a hundred thousand people in there, um, that's a cool stadium, by the way, uh, if you guys have never been, you should go. Um, I, but bizarrely, I've actually been there, and cool. my claim to fame, and Jamie will be fed up hearing this. I actually kicked a field goal there because they allow you on, they allow you on the field, which is just tremendous. It. They, How cool it's is that? Play? Brilliant! Oh, it's, um, it, it's, oh, it's spectacular. It's hard to explain, but I actually scored the first points in that stadium yes. when we played them, and I hit the game winner that night. So I actually have that ball. It's not in here, but it's in my house somewhere. That that is. Absolutely awesome. I mean, because it is, it's it is a theatre. I mean, it is a even you could call it a cathedral of football. It is utterly amazing. They have not left any detail unattended. When you so when place. you come in there as a visitor on the bus, and you drive down and kind of go through the bowels of the stadium, it takes you like three minutes in a bus to get to your locker room. That's how big it is. <laughs> like you're driving on a bus for like three minutes to get <laughs> underground to your. That's how massive that stadium is. Um, and on the on the flip side, Lawrence, if I gave you the chance to raise a stadium to the ground, which place did you not enjoy kicking in? Oh boy, any of those around Lake Erie? What's the lake around Cleveland? Buffalo? Oh yeah, those, yeah. those suck. Cleveland, <laughs> Buffalo, Chicago. Anything grass in the winter is tough. Yeah. Field turf has really helped field goal percentages. Field turf is always good. The plant's good. The surface is like hit from the fairway all the time. But like you play on grass in the winter, it's usually sandy and tough to, you know, stick your plant. So I always say, you give me wind and cold on field turf, I'm fine. Give me wind and cold on grass in winter, it's, it's tough. It becomes very difficult. In terms of, you know, you, you then kicked four years later the NFC Championship game in San Francisco, 31 yards. It's one of these ones that sounds easy, but the snap was low and the, you had a lot of work to do on that kick. Yeah, Steve did a really good job with that whole um, 
Zach Diossi, just it was a little low. I mean, it wasn't crazy low. It, it low is better than high um, on a field goal because when you see your holder jump up and raise his hands up, that's never a good sign. So you know, he just casually caught it. It was a really good job. I mean, the field was slick. It was wet. Excuse me. Um, so he, you know, Steve was a great holder. Zach was a good snapper. It was just, you know, the moment gets to everybody. Always, everyone's always thinking about the kicker on game winners, and I'm like. I would hate to hold for game winners. Like I just, you know, that's something people know what nobody thinks about, like catching that ball and placing it. I don't know. Maybe that's just because what they do, I could do it, but there's a lot of things that have to happen before that kick happens. See that, that game, that, that kick is like absolutely iconic for me in terms of following the giants. I watched the game with my brother. who's a 49ers fan. Oh, nice. It must have been about 5 a.m. here when that kick went over. And we'd been sitting up in his flat in Glasgow all night watching the game. I think I was going to work in about two hours later or something like that. And I, the thing that's always stuck in my head is, is Weatherford wheeling away on the slow motion. Oh, yeah. Going, oh, there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he took all my, he took all my, my stardom right there. Like, it, the <laughs> camera went right to him. I'm like, he didn't make the damn kick. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but Steve was like, you know, you know, Steve had been, you know, that was his fourth straight championship game. No one, I don't know if anyone put that together. He went to one with New Orleans and then back to back with the Jets, maybe. Yeah. And he had never won one. So for him, that was like a lot of relief and frustration after having not ever been to go to the Super Bowl. So um, yeah, that was, I believe, his fourth championship game in a row because he did New Orleans or it was Jets, Jets, then New Orleans or something like this. Weird. You have to look it up. But he had been to three previous and lost them all. So um, and then you turn around. Then my first guy I saw was Jarrell Jernigan. He, he went to Troy. So it was fun. You know, we had we had uh, three Troy guys on that team. So me, O.C. and Jarrell. So it was from a small school to have that many guys on the team. That was a cool, you know, candlesticks, a legendary part. It's, it's kind of, you know, I know they've since blown it up, but everyone remembers candlestick with Montana and Steve young. And so, yeah, that was, that was fun. Um, That was, that was a cool night. And it was, you know, I just watched, you know, the end of the AFC championship game where Billy Cundiff missed the game winner. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there. I, I I don't even know. I probably did think about that before I kicked by. And I was like, oh, my God. I just saw Billy Cundiff miss to put the Ravens in the Super Bowl. So, And then you immediately think when you make it, oh, my God, we're playing freaking Patriots again. <laughs> so, <laughs> everything's I mean, just been so repetitive in my career, I feel like. Well, I mean, if, if, you're, if you're going to beat a team in the Super Bowl, you may as well make it the Patriots. Let's talk about what it's like. I mean, you win the championship game. I mean, there's obviously a great celebration. You're going to travel back to New York. Uh, how quickly does it click into gear, the professionals, that actually we've got one more game to go here that will mean pretty, everything? Yeah, pretty quick. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, we had a long flight home, six hours, five hours uh, from San Francisco back to New York. So you have a little fun there. But, um, you know, you, you have two weeks to prepare. So, you can take a couple of days. Obviously we went right to work, I think Monday. And then, you know, the first week is really just getting everything situated for the Super Bowl. 
you just don't want to have to deal with anything during the week of the game. So you just get all your ticket stuff out of the way. Um, take care of your body, rest up. We, we practice, but not anything crazy. And then, uh, you know, when you go, where were we? Indy that year, when you fly out to Indy that Sunday, like, I don't want to deal with anyone from my family period for the whole week. I just, I don't watch TV. That's it. I did it the first Super Bowl, and then I did it in the second. I don't watch any TV that whole week because I just don't. I know the game's big, but I just, you just don't want to hype it up anymore. I mean, you can you can read too much, hear too much. So we would get in. We all the guys would play our video games or cards or something at night, um, and I would see my family. I just, you know, you just when you get there, you just want to focus on the game, and then you know if you win that game, you can go party for as long as you want. <laughs> <laughs> What do you remember most about the the Super Bowl, Lawrence? What 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 is the abiding memory for you? Well, the first one, I was nervous, very, very, very nervous, and I don't typically get nervous for sporting events, but I was pretty nervous. Um, pre-game is different. You come out for pre-game, and there's, you know, the field is painted differently. There's paint everywhere on like certain hash marks, which is not normal. And then there's people everywhere on the field and around. So the whole thing is just different. And if you want to mess up a pro athlete, just change their routine. Like everything just was different. Half times, 20 minutes. Um, but, you know, we had that really long drive in the first Super Bowl and I made a field goal. So that settles you down. Um, and then I just, you know, I didn't take a whole lot in. And the first Super Bowl was all blur the whole week, everything. So I tried to do more of that in the second Super Bowl, which thankfully we got to one. Um, the thing that sticks out to me is how vividly even, you know, 10 years later, 15 years later that I can remember plays like, cause every play is like its own story and you just vividly, I can close my eyes and remember just vividly plays from that. Cause everything is, you know, each play is going to be talked about potentially forever, obviously with the Tyree catch, the Manningham catch. Um, and there's a lot of little plays in between there, you know, when, when Ahmad Bradshaw went down in Super Bowl 42 and somehow stole the football from Adelius Thomas, like we don't win the game. If he, that doesn't happen, like Adelius Thomas had the ball, we saw it. And then somehow Ahmad Bradshaw comes out of this pile with the football. So you gotta be lucky, but, um, I just think the overwhelm, you, you feel the tension in the stadium when you walk out. That's what I'll remember about Super Bowl. It's 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 like nothing you can you can't ever duplicate it. It's not like a regular season. It's not like an NFC championship game. There's just something specifically different about it, tension wise, and you feel it when you walk out there. In terms of uh, the 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 Giants were a team of personalities. I mean, J- Jamie will know this. He, he follows the Giants a lot closer. I mean, in terms of the headline there, what was Eli Manning like to, to play with and to watch his leadership skills? What, what, what was that like? I mean, Eli's was like, what you see is what you get. I mean, if you had, if you formed an opinion of him from the outside, it would probably be pretty accurate. He doesn't, he doesn't say a whole lot. Um, he is very, very funny behind closed doors, um, which we're seeing now that he's done with Twitter and his hot sauce. Wish he'd stop tweeting about hot sauce. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, but Eli is, everyone loves Eli. He's, he's the ultimate competitor. I mean, he was, 
you know, however many games in a row until McAdoo screwed that up. But um, tough warrior, man. He's a warrior. I, I tell people all the time I'd take Eli Manning over Peyton Manning in a playoff game any day of the week. And I would wow. I stand behind that. I look at Eli's playoff record and what he's done in the playoffs and where he's where he's beaten teams. And I'm telling you, he's an assassin in the playoffs. He just – he hits another gear. I felt like um... – Victor Cruz gave the offense a lot of personality in the in the in the run in 2011 as well. Would that be would that be fair? Yeah, you know he was such a cool story being from New Jersey, undrafted, from 15 minutes away. Um, he, Victor's one of the coolest guys you ever meet, and so everyone was so excited for him. But the salsa dance really kind of you know excited the stadium. It excited. New York City's fan base, you know, you see people doing the salsa all over. And, you know, that was a good group with Manny Ham and Hakeem Nix, who Hakeem Nix is one of my favorite players of all time, and I hate that he had foot injuries. But Hakeem Nix, to me, was probably the best receiver I ever played with. Um, he just unfortunately had some foot injuries. But, you know, one of my favorite pitchers of, of all time in Giants during my career is that picture of Hakeem, Victor, and, Mar and uh, Mario – walking off the field in San Francisco. It's just an iconic picture. Those guys were – those three guys were studs. So, um, yeah, Victor brought a lot of personality. And, you know, listen, local kid playing for the Giants. Um, that was a pretty cool story. Brilliant. And, of course, OC really well-known here now for doing all the, all the BBC coverage of the NFL. And, um, you know, he's an award-winning broadcaster here now. He's – which is unbelievable. Me and OC, me and OC went to college together. So me and OC have been together since we were kids. Um, and I love OC. So, and he's never invited me onto a show, which is a joke. Cause I'm probably <laughs> never been on the show. Um, listen, I, they got to bring in some special teams or, you know, another Brit I'm Scottish. So listen, he's got, I think he has, I don't know if he has some American over there with him, his buddy, uh, What's that guy's name? Yeah, I can't Jason, Jason Bell. Yeah, Jason Bell. So I'm still waiting, OC, for the invite. Um, you know, me and OC were in college together for two years. He, When he came into Troy, he was a 300-pound defensive tackle. Oh. He was. Wow. He was 16, young, and then he went the other way. He lost a lot of weight. He always had great feet, played soccer, and then became a pass rusher. And then DeMarcus Ware came in at 200 pounds, was a receiver slash end, and then put on 50 pounds if he came. But OC is one of my favorites. Um, yeah, we've we kind of spent our whole professional and college football career together. It was kind of cool to do it in New York. It's interesting. I mean, the bonds that that certain sports teams have, and you know, I, I presume you've you know you've got great fondness for all the guys. That, that you played with uh, how easy is it to keep in touch with them or is it just you know you'll stumble across people from time to time uh yeah with social media it's pretty easy i mean you, you can keep in touch with anybody nowadays uh, you know we'll have our 10-year anniversary of super bowl 46 this year against the rams so october 17th we'll all go up friday saturday sunday monday and be together again you know most of those guys I haven't seen in 10 years or longer. Uh, so, um, well, that wouldn't make sense because it's a 10 year anniversary. So it hasn't been longer. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So that would be stupid. Uh, so yeah, it'll be good to see everyone and it'll be just like yesterday. Like, I mean, we haven't been together in person, but that group is so tight. Like you mentioned, just like the other group we had our 10 year, four years ago. So it's just fun to see everyone make fun of them if they're overweight. I mean, just we'll do all those fun things that we did in the locker room. And, um, you know, unfortunately we've lost two of those guys, uh, you know, um, Tyler, Tyler, geez, why am I losing my train of thought here? Um, anyway, we've lost, lost two of those guys. So that, I think they'll be on the forefront of our minds too. I mean, two guys that helped us win the Super Bowl won't be there. Um, so it's, uh, but it's fun to get together with those guys, uh, and see how everybody's doing. Jamie, how best do you remember those those Giants teams? Um, yeah, I'm going to start with 2011. It's just, you know, like you've been watching back footage um, from that Super Bowl run, and, and it's just, it's amazing how fresh the personalities, like Victor and Osi and uh, Anshul Roll all feel. I don't know. I, it was just a, a team that I connected with. Um, as a team that I, um, yeah, yeah. It, it, when I think of the Giants, I think of I think of the I think of that team. Um, yeah. that's you know the, the, they haven't had the same identity and personality since. Yeah, it's been a while. They have um, they're trying to find their way, and I think Joe Judge is the right guy. It seems like he's kind of brought back that blue collar work mentality. Um, they've gotten rid of some of the divas and some of the people that didn't quite fit in and were more about, you know, I always say there's some people that like football and there's people that like what football gives them. Mm. You got to get rid of the guys that like what football gives them. Because um, if you win a Super Bowl like we have and those teams, you know, you'll be remembered in New York forever. And, and I think that's important. As I've gotten older, I appreciate it more because I – I don't go back to New York very often, but um, when I go back, I mean, like if you have to use your, you know, your ID card for something like that and they'll go, Oh my God, Lawrence Tynes. It's, you know, it's, it's just cool that those people never forget you yeah. in New York and the Canyon of Heroes parades are the two things that stand out from the Super Bowls. Um, to do that on a float with four or 5 million people celebrating you and ticker tape coming out of the, buildings that that's hard to explain that's that's when you know you did something pretty cool yeah i i think they're going down the right route with joe judge i mean you know the the giants the, the best giants teams like who were under parcells and coughlin you know these iconic teams joe judge is clearly a student of that sort of you know hard-nosed blue-collar way of going about things and and i know that the media were unsure about it and thought this is maybe a bit of an affectation and that he was maybe just trying to, um, you know, you know, adopt things that he'd maybe seen Bill Belichick do around the, around the organisation. But I've said on this part a few times, I don't think the fact that everyone talks about the buy-in and they show the buy-in, I don't think that they can, I don't think they can make that up. I don't think that they're, I don't think that they're lying about that. I think there is a full buy-in with it. Um, you just got to hope it, that it leads to results this year. This year's huge. He's had a year to get it bedded in now. Everyone's on board with it. They have an identity. Now they've got to show that the identity. Yeah. And they, and they spent a lot of money too. So 
John Mara, John Mara is a very impatient man. And he, listen, he, he, he may look soft on the external, but he's a fiery competitor and he hates, he hates where the giants have been since God knows when, I mean, he wants to win. And I think them getting to the playoffs, they have to get to the playoffs this year. That's the, I mean, I don't, the amount of money that was spent um, and with the weapons they have and Daniel Jones will play fine. I think the biggest question mark is Saquon Barkley. So um, a lot of people are saying it's Daniel Jones. I disagree with that. I think Saquon Barkley is the biggest question mark on this football team. Cause we don't know. I mean, running back with an ACL, that's tough. That that's, that's very, very tough to, to kind of come back from and trust. And hopefully he doesn't, I'm not saying he won't play and play well sometimes, but I, I don't know that he's ever going to fully trust it this year. There's already pressure on him to be involved, you know, every single time he gets a microphone. Are you going to be ready for week one? Not if the knee's not right. Yeah. And, and having listen, that pressure on him. Yeah, Ronnie Barnes is the best trainer, I think, in football. He'll he'll do the right thing. I I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's if he doesn't start. I know a lot of people are expecting him to play, but I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't, to be honest. You obviously keep a very close eye. You mentioned you do, you know, a twice weekly podcast and things. So you, you know, you break down all things Giants and on all teams. Are you are you still desperate to watch all the games? You know, is it is it something that that's just in your blood and won't go away? Yeah, yeah, I watch. I mean, hell, my wife gets mad at me because I watch the second half of preseason games, which is a little bit delusional. <laughs> um, but I, someone's got to. Yeah, I, I, there's always there's always that Victor Cruz out there somewhere. Yeah, and so I always, I was one of those kids trying to make it. I mean, a little different deal kicking, but I like seeing these kids, man. And I, I I'm pretty good at identifying talent. I think so. I feel like I can see kids that may make it. And then I like to keep an eye on them, see if they did make it. But I just, it, it's a cool game to me, man. It's it's um, it it's it's a warrior. It's a gladiator sport and to see these young guys in the second half competing uh, for spots. Yeah. I watch, I mean, I pay whatever the hell it costs 300 bucks a year for just for the NFL package to get, cause I don't, I live in the middle of the country away from New York. So like I have to pay for the NFL deal, which is great. Cause you know, me and my sons will, we'll have six games going at once on the split screen. So it's um, <laughs> if the giants aren't playing um, it's a lot of fun, man. I just, Every NFL game is close. I think that's why it's cool. It's, it's, you know, there's a blowout every other week, but how people bet on gamble in the NFL is beyond me. I have no idea how they do that. Lawrence, I genuinely love the fact that you that you're in love with the game, and I, I love what you said earlier. You know, there's people who love the game, and there's people who love what they can get out of it. I think that's a really telling statement, and I'm presuming that to be a Super Bowl team, you've got to have players that simply love the game. You got to have 53 of them. Um, and we did both times. We were just, we had two really good groups. You know, I, I would say the best team I was on was the team in 08. Um, and we didn't win the Super Bowl. You know, when Plaxico had the, had his deal and that really killed us, you know, losing our number one receiver. But we were clearly the best team in football that year. I mean, we were destroying teams and we should have went back to back. But having all 53 guys in the practice squad buy in, that's, and that's any sport. I, you know, I coach youth sports and I, and I talk to the kids and there's still some, you know, they're a little young to understand it, but if you care about your teammates and you care about the group, 
teams can't have success. I don't care how much talent you have. If you really genuinely care about each other, teams can win. And culture is a big, big deal in sports. And it's the same in Scotland. It's the same in England on all these Scottish, you know, the clubs, the soccer teams. You got to have buy-in from everyone. And, you know, it's like Jamie Tart on Ted Lasso. He, I don't know if you watched Ted Lasso, <laughs> but he, they got rid of Jamie Tart because he didn't know buy-in, you know? And, yeah. and then they brought him back. And, and I think, you know, you can't have guys like that on your team. And, and obviously we did a good job of weeding those guys out because ultimately the locker room controls the football team. So, you know, we had a leadership committee in New York under Coughlin. I was on it. And, you know, Tom would meet with us once a week and he wanted to know what was going on. You know, what was going on in the locker room? What's, what are you guys hearing? What's guy, are guys mad about something? What do they like? What do they don't like? So I thought that was really cool that Tom did that because he trusted us enough to tell him. But, you know, we had Tuck and Strahan. We had really smart Eli, we had intelligent guys that could feel the pulse of the team and let him know things maybe he wasn't sure of. And in terms of, I mean, you know, you, you travel around the league when you were playing, you talk to other kickers and things like that. How quickly can you get a sense that your opponents aren't perhaps as together as, as they might like to make out? And, and does that give you the competitive edge? Well, that's hard to decipher. I mean, because no one really knows. You're, you, you don't have enough time to focus on what other teams are doing. But you can – I think the easiest way to tell is, like, you know, stupid penalties. Uh, you can just watch games and see if guys care about, you know, fighting or getting personal fouls and things like that. So um, the team will usually demonstrate who they are on game day. I always thought when you, when you saw Tom Coughlin's teams play us, we were disciplined, we were physical, but we were – you know, we weren't fighters. We weren't chippy. We weren't hitting after the whistle. You know, things like that, I think, kind of tell you who you are as a football team. So, I mean, Tom Coughlin had a lot of rules, and a lot of people didn't like him at first, but I'm sure, you know, after they saw what he was about, you know, a lot of people still, and I do to this day, set my clock five minutes fast. <laughs> it's always going to be five minutes fast. Yeah. And everyone I know that's played for Tom, their wristwatch is five minutes fast just because he ingrains that in your head. That is brilliant. I mean, he, he has a reputation of being a disciplinarian, but we see that with various coaches, but you get to see the real people. And, and you know, it, 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 I presume he's a lot warmer when, when you know him than, than perhaps the sort of brusqueness that you can, can give, certainly to the media as well. Yeah, because and Bill Belichick's the same way. He's hilarious. Awesome. Um but Tom is, is great. Yeah, he's – I think people have a work manner and a home manner, and, and that's, that's fine. I'm not the same guy I was when I played football. Completely different person, I think. Um, but you have to be. I mean, you have to be able to turn it on and turn it off to go home. It's, it's such a competitive world that you're in for however long you play in the NFL – the thing is we're different. I, I say that like you have to be different to play. Like, and then I'm not that same person. I know, I know I was, and I know I wanted to be, but I don't, I'm not just that same person anymore. But Tom is, is, uh, you know, with all his charity, the J fund and away from the field. I mean, he's an incredible person cares about you. He sent my wife flowers um, when we had the twins and I had only just gotten traded to New York. Like, two months before that never met. He didn't really know me. He didn't know my wife. First set of flowers we got was from Tom Coughlin. 
you know, that won't be written about in the media. Um, but Tom had a persona work. I, I call it like a work face. That, that's just how he wanted to be. And it worked. Yeah. I think you want to get a group of guys to run through brick walls for you. You've got to have that, that you know, you've got to show it, don't you? You can't just shout, well, you've got to show what it means to be a team. And Tom, you, I always felt like someone that would, that would be able to, to put that across but then again, if you were to transport me right now into a press conference and have to interview him, I would be absolutely terrified. Would you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. Maybe not Belichick-style is... terrified, but Tom, yeah, God, I would I would be so well, scared of asking the wrong thing. Yes, and not that he would, he would never um... – you know, I think I respect about Tom is he never made – I don't think he did make any reporters look stupid or feel dumb, but he would – make sure you're asking and what you're asking. He was just very, very detailed. Um, you know, it's funny. I was looking at one of our, I, I came across one of our preseason road trip schedules, itineraries. And, my, and I was showing my son that the other night and it's a mint condition. It, we were playing the Steelers in 2010 in the preseason. And my son laughed because it's, it's literally from the time you leave Friday, New Jersey, till you get back, Saturday night after the preseason game to Sunday morning into your, all your treatments. And, then, and it's every 10, 12, 14, 16, 17, 18 minutes, like specialists go to the field at 6.09, national anthem at 6.29 and 30 seconds. I mean, that was the itinerary. And it was so detailed that, you know, you couldn't wear long socks in practice. You couldn't wear ankle socks in practice. You couldn't be out of your suit in the hotel lobby. If you were in the lobby of a hotel on a road trip, you had to be in your suit. No casual clothes. You could be in your casual clothes on your floor. But just the way he detailed um, us as players, I think we played like that because you paid attention to the small details. And that's what I tell kids I coach now. I say, you know, the difference between uh, high school athletes and like why are pros pros? I say because they do all the little things really well which means they stretch. They do the stupid drills that you see guys doing pregame that may look boring to you, but ultimately if you keep doing that over time, they become second nature. So I really like to tell young kids that I said, you know, college athletes and pro athletes do all the little things really well. So when they want to bitch about stretching or lifting or things that, you know, they need to do to work on their craft. um, I just try to share that with them because that's, that's what a pro athlete is. It's someone that can consistently repeat something uh, at a very high level. So, and, uh, Do you get a great deal of satisfaction out of the coaching? Is it something you love really it. enjoy? Absolutely love it. I'm done now. So uh, I did them, you know, since they were five to 14, they just started high school. So that now everything's high school sports. Um, so I just coached like my last baseball game, my last soccer game this past summer. So um, I'm good with it. I did, you know, I've met, got some great kids and I, I think I helped a lot of kids. And I think I'll get to go watch all these kids around town play. I'll go watch them play baseball. They'll all go to different high schools. There's a lot of high schools around here. There's a lot of schools. And so we'll go, they played with kids from all over the Metro. What'll be fun is I'll get to go see them all play in high school. So, but I'm actually completely fine with it because I don't have to deal with parents anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that could be a whole separate podcast. Cut, yeah. I mean, listen, yep. I, I never cut kids. I cut parents. 
<laughs> and I did. Yeah, I, yeah no, I, I did a little bit of soccer coaching. Yeah, we'll, we'll do that on another podcast sometime. Yeah. I got a couple of questions just before we let you go because we really do appreciate your time. One of, one of the technical things, now Jamie's far too modest to tell you this, but before lockdown happened, we got together with some guys from the Edinburgh Wolves uh, American football team, and they taught us a few things and took us through a few drills, and including kicking. And Jamie was our star kicker from the NFL Scotland podcast. Okay. He, he was the man that made it from distance. I'm going to tell you I pulled my, my groin because I did, because I was trying to practice too hard, and that was my fault. When you're watching a kicker for the first time, you know, I, I know, for example, so I'll give you the example. Jamie knows when he sits in the room in the press conference, he can tell pretty quickly who are good journalists, who are bad journalists. How quickly can you assess whether a guy has got it as a kicker or won't have it as a kicker? What do you look for? I do a lot of it around town. People reach out to me on social media and they know I live here. And I do go spend time with kids. I do it one time. Um, and then they can send me videos and stuff. I just don't want to commit to long-term lessons with kids because why would I want to make kids better than my kids? So I'm like, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, I'll tell you what, to be honest with you, I don't even have to see you. I, I do have to see you kick, but for me, I would like to talk to you and hang out with you and bust your balls a little bit and see who you are mentally. That's the most important piece to being a field goal kicker. Can you take me busting your balls or throwing stuff at you when you kick? Or, you know, that's a lot of guys can kick. Seriously, a lot of guys can kick. It's just hard to say, what is this kid going to do at the end of a game or in a stadium with 80,000 people in it? And I can tell from a mental standpoint, the kids that, um, I'll give you a perfect example just because this is an NFL podcast. So Dominic Ellerby, he just signed with the Panthers. Um, last night he was a German exchange student and then about five years ago six years ago I was at Utah State John Hartwell is a good friend of mine he's the AD out there and he said well why don't you come down here coach has got these kickers and specialists out here and I go down there and there's the junior the senior the guys who have kicked before at Utah State and the punters I saw this kid and I was like god dang he's good like really good and I said who's that the coach was like Dominic, I don't even, he couldn't even, didn't even know his last name. He's a German exchange student. So after about 30 minutes, we get done and I went up to the coach. I said, he was wearing some horrific number too, like 92 or something. I go, 92 is the best kicker you got. He goes, really? He goes, walk on. I said, so was I, who cares? I said, that's the best guy you got. He started in the next four years. Was on the Raiders practice squad last year. Obviously, Carlson had a good year. He's kind of bounced around. He called me, reached out. He's pissed off. He got really – I said, just keep making kicks. And he got signed by the Panthers last night. Um, German kid, so you guys have to keep – he's a European kid. Uh, he's good. He's going to play a long time. He played in the preseason game last week, went three for three. And the Panthers are upset with Joey Sly, the big, you know, he-man-looking kicker. That's like the <laughs> So hopefully Dominic has a good last week and, you know, they keep him. I, I've sent a nice text to Chase Blackburn. He's the special teams coach at Carolina. I said, keep an eye on my buddy. I said, he's going to – I said, I hope he does well for you. So he, he does. He just 
I don't know. I just, I have an eye for kids. And then I, I liked it when I talked to him, he kind of had this carefree go-getter attitude. And I, you know, of course he had to kick well mm-hmm. and he did. And so, yeah, he had a really good career at Utah state. Really good. So yeah, I, I love working with guys, but to, the number one thing I would say is just, I would like to talk to them and understand who they are mentally. The physical part would be secondary for me. That's, that's really great. Jamie, do you have any last questions for Lawrence before we let him, let him go? One last one. I just want to know, Lawrence, if you keep an eye out for other Scots and Scottish-related guys in the game, not just NFL, but, but maybe... Oh, Graham Gano, baby. Graham Gano. Graham Gano, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that they, they only have... I told Coach Quinn and T-Mac at New York, I said, you guys are going to have a hell of a time finding another Scottish kicker. Because <laughs> Graham, I don't know who he is. He might be out there. I don't know. I know Jamie Gillen is in Cleveland, the hammer. But, um, you know, Graham's a cool story. Graham moved to Pensacola, just like I did, at the same age. Like, Graham is from, like, the same town I'm from, a little bit further away. But we would have played them in high school if we were the same age. <laughs> Dad's in Navy. Mom's Scottish. Yeah. And then the other kicker the Giants have right now, Santoso, he's from my rival high school in Florida. <laughs> So wow. T-Mac told me, he goes, he goes, I like the 850 kids. That's our zip code down there, our area code. <laughs> he said he just liked us because he knows what we're all about down there. Because we, we grew up playing like tough, tough football, tough-minded. So, but I think it's funny that Graham Gano is in New York. Our, our backstories are identical. Yeah. Military fathers, Scottish moms, moved to America when we were 10. And moved to the same place in America. It's bizarre. It's, it's, it's wild. It's, I love. I love it when life throws us. Graham has out. no super. Graham has no Super Bowl ring, so he's not. He he does have a lot more money than I have, but he doesn't have Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> he has. He has made a fortune kicking footballs. By the way, oh, that is that is tremendous. Absolutely tremendous. Before I let you you go, Lawrence, prediction for for your division this season? Will we see the Giants? A top, well, you know, do they have enough to get past Dallas, Washington, and, and the Eagles this year? Yeah, without being a homer, I really do think the Giants should win this division. I know Washington is going to have a tough defense. I just don't think offensively they're good enough to keep up. But I would say it would it would be the Giants at maybe, you know, 11 and 6, I think would be a good record for them. And then Dallas, Washington, I think the Eagles are going to be terrible. So, actually, I just hope the Eagles are terrible. Fingers that crossed. Was, <laughs> yeah, they, after they trotted that godforsaken quarterback out there that last year, <laughs> I will never forget that. I, I, that kid is actually – I saw him play the other day, and I wanted to jump through the TV. He's playing for somebody else, but he sucked. He was <laughs> <laughs> And they put him out there knowing if they lose, then – yeah. The Giants don't go to the playoffs. I'm convinced of that. Oh, man, Lawrence, I was almost over that. Yeah, I know. We'll we'll get over it real quick because the season's about to start. But Yes. uh, Nate Sudfeld, that's him. I just (laughs) came Nate. Oh, it, it, it cost people their jobs in the end, so it was all a very sordid, mm. um, all a very sordid. Yeah, and I like Jalen Hurts. I just – I don't know that Jalen Hurts is a – French, like he's a good player. I think he can win some games. I just long term. I just if you can't play this game from the pocket, I just don't know that you can play long term. 
That's it for the NFL Scotland podcast. Simply put, how good was that? To be in the company of a legend, Jamie Borthwick, obviously, and also two-time Super Bowl winning Lauren Steins. He was as good as advertised. We'll be back next week with more great guests, more information, but from everybody on the NFL Scotland podcast. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>